questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Although close encounters with alien spacecraft are reported as far back as the reign of Pharaoh Thutmosis III in Egypt, it wasn't until the 20th century that UFO sightings and extraterrestrial encounters were truly documented due to advances in technology and record-keeping, as well as the vast increase in incidents, particularly with military forces. Tonight's special guest discusses his extensive research and the verifiable evidence he's discovered and presents a comprehensive military history of armed confrontations between humans and extraterrestrials in the 20th and 21st centuries. If you're a newcomer, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can subscribe with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. Today's special guest is Frank Joseph, who was the editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine from 1993 until 2007. He is the author of several books, including Before Atlantis, An Advanced Civilization of Prehistoric America. His latest book is titled Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the Worlds, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. His website is ancientamerican.com. Frank Joseph joins us directly from the Upper Mississippi Valley. Hello, Mr. Joseph, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you so much, Mel. That's uh, quite a hard introduction to follow, but I'll do the best I can. May I call you Frank? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, first, I think it would be important after reading the book, because we discuss this all the time here, but you have really, really taken this a step further with a lot of these cases. And I think first, it would be very important to begin with the seven major categories of encounters. And even though our audience is well-versed about this, it would be refreshing in our minds. Can you define the seven categories? Yes, I'll definitely run through them for you. Uh, these categories, it should be understood by your listeners, are not hard and fast. They're just guidelines, that's all, for us to sort of get a, a handle on this question. And uh, that's all they are. But I think uh, they help to illuminate it. Well, there's close encounters of the first kind, which are visual sightings of an unidentified flying object. There's close encounters of the second kind, this is uh, interference by a UFO in the functioning of an earthly vehicle or an electronic device we have down here, or leaving behind other kinds of physical evidence. Close encounters of the third kind, um, after the famous or infamous movie was made about it, close encounters of the third kind is a human in the presence of an extraterrestrial. Close encounters of the fourth kind is a human abducted 
by extraterrestrials. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is a direct communication between extraterrestrials and humans. Close Encounters of the Sixth Kind is the death of a human or an animal associated with a UFO or extraterrestrial sighting. Close Encounters of the Seventh Kind is the creation of a human-alien hybrid being, either by direct sexual reproduction or by artificial scientific methods. Um, I should say that we're going to be talking about here as a new category, Close Encounters of the Eighth Kind. And that's why I wanted to discuss the seven kinds first, because you add an eighth category. What is this eighth category? Close Encounters of the Eighth Kind are military confrontations between human combatants and extraterrestrials. It's important, I think, uh, this last classification because it encapsulates all the previous seven classifications. Again, this is not; these are not laws or anything. They're just put down to help us to understand these sure. things. But nonetheless, um, they do. And what I found uh, particularly, well, I don't know how else to put it, but I got kind of powerful putting it to this book together. And what makes this book unique, there are, of course, are thousands of books on UFOs. And I was very reluctant to write this because I'm not a ufologist, but I, I am a reporter and I do have a background in military reporting. Um, but what I found putting this book together, that because it relies upon military reports, upon news reports, and mostly very reliable news reports, also upon the records of MUFON and other uh, credible organizations like that, that the amount, the vast amount of background material, documented material, I've, I've never really encountered this in any other writing that I've, I've seen on this subject. I didn't set out to do this, but it, it turned out as I was putting this information together, I was thinking, wow, uh, every incident that I have in here is not theoretical. And as you see at the back of the book, it's quite a profuse uh, resource material, uh, endnote section. So the book, I think, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, and I, I don't mean to, to blow my own horn in this, uh, but I think that this book has conceivably um, the greatest collection of hard evidence that you can fit between two covers that I've I've seen just about any place else. And this is not to take away from the really terrific books that have been written on the subject, and I defer to them uh, and the more professional ufologists uh, in the book. Uh, so it's it turned out to be more than I expected, quite honestly. And this is what impressed me a lot while reading the book, because I know, actually, I did not know that you were not a ufologist. If you read this book, you think that you've been at this for decades by reading it. But you have discussed so many other topics in the past, but you have a reporting style that's very, very clear, very black and white, and you just document the evidence as it's presented to you. So what motivated you to, to write this book if you were not a ufologist before? Uh, two things motivated me. Um, the first was uh, by accident. I think it was back in the early 1990s. The exact date is in my book, for whatever that's worth. It was around 1991, 1993, something like that. I was in Egypt. I was in the Cairo Museum, which, as our listeners are probably aware, is the greatest repository for information and knowledge and records documents on ancient Egypt. 
and I was making myself uh, available to this uh, terrific collection of materials that is available there. And the materials are translated into numerous languages. The materials are translated also by uh, tremendous experts in linguistics and everything. So what you're reading is the real thing. I do not read um, ancient Egyptian very well. I, I get a little bit of it, but certainly not enough to uh, translate an entire document. Well, to make a long story short, I was studying the work of a particular monarch, monarch and uh, his name was Thutmosis III. And the reason why I was after him to read about him was because he was the king of Egypt at a very uh, wonderful period in their history, uh, literally a golden age. This was in the New Kingdom, and um, it was the, the triumph of early science and all so much of the greatness that we associate with ancient Egypt. So I'm reading these original documents about him, and one I came across I'd never seen or heard of before was called the Thule Papyrus. And the Thule Papyrus is not a religious document. It is not about mythology. It is a bureaucrat's chronology of um, the uh, one of the the ruling periods for Pharaoh Thutmosis III. What went on? It's a chronology with a little, uh, a few paragraphs, maybe at most, for the things that happened. And while I was reading this uh, this Thule papyrus, I came across an event that I had to reread. I I couldn't believe what I was reading. Uh, it, it talked about an event that happened in uh, his reign, and they have the exact date. It happened at the equivalent of our understanding of the past, of 1479 B.C. And I'll give you how long, give me an idea how long ago that was. That was 3,000, almost 3,500 years ago. And it, this document... Uh, the Thule Papyrus, by the way, Thule is, just to be brief about this, is named after the uh, Italian Egyptologist uh, who found this document and translated it. And it was interesting, even with uh, Ernesto Thule, he, trans he found it in about 1935 or 36, something like that, doing his archaeological work in Egypt. And when he translated it, he was so shocked by the trans, his own translation that he never declared it publicly. He never tried to sell it or take credit for it. He put it in a personal trunk and was only half, after he died uh, in the late 1940s, about uh, 10 or 15 years after he found it, that his relatives, in going through his effects, found the Thule Papyrus, couldn't read any of it at all, but it obviously looked like a valuable document. They turned it over to the authorities. They translated it, were shocked by it, and had it retranslated by a Russian and by an American, and they both came up with very similar uh, translations. And I'll tell you what the translation, what this event was about. It describes uh, the Thule Papyrus, this section of it, document one, actually, said that it, uh, the, the date, the precise date is missing. We know it's 1479 B.C., and it was in February. Some The exact date was mentioned, but is gone. But we do know that it was lost. But we do know that it was in February. And in February of 1479, on a clear afternoon, a, a very strange object was seen in the sky, flying low and slow 
over the entire Nile Valley. And this object is described literally as either a fiery disc, a disc of fire, or a ring that was on fire, a metallic ring, a golden ring that was on fire, made no noise, was not going particularly fast, flew over the Nile Valley. It went from south to north and disappeared over the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this caused a tremendous sensation. But what happened the following day in, in February again was that the disk returned uh, in its same starting position somewhere over probably Sudan, what is today Sudan, this would be the Upper Nile Valley, only it returned in company with um, an uncounted number of objects exactly like it, a fleet of them, a flotilla of these burning rings, or as they say, a direct translation is fiery disc, fiery discs. They flew low and slow over the Nile Valley. This caused terrific social dislocation, uh, great fear, and the the pharaoh himself was notified, Thutmosis III, and he saw the objects, as probably did hundreds of thousands of people, because it flew the whole length of the Nile uh, Valley that Egypt controlled, which was, of course, substantial. And he was under terrific uh, political pressure to do something, because the pharaoh is in charge of everything. The only thing he could do was call out the army. And the army made a physical presence, but there was nothing that they could do, of course, and um, except to calm the, the population. The discs are then described as following the same path as the original one the day before, um, exiting over the Nile Delta and flying away uh, over the Mediterranean. Now, the scribe who wrote this, we don't know his name, uh, he concludes his report in an untypical way, because if you read the rest of the Thule Papyrus, he writes in a very methodical and unemotional way about what happened during Thutmose III's reign. But here, he couldn't help himself. And he says, this is the way it ends. Quote, Thereupon they, the fire disks, went up higher, directed towards the south, and vanished. The objects represented, quote, a marvel that never occurred since the foundation of this land. And it was ordered that the event be recorded for his majesty in the annals of the house of life to be remembered forever, Unquote. Now, what's remarkable about this is that when you understand the, the origins of this report, that it was just a straight report, uh, it was also the very first military report that we have about confrontation, if you can call it that, or a sighting, however you want to categorize it, between human beings and what appears to be the possessors of craft uh, that don't belong to our, our world. These are the same types of objects that are seen today that were seen 3,500 years ago. So arguments that are sometimes made that, oh, well, the UFOs that we're seeing are very possibly or probably there are examples of modern uh, secret military technology. Well, perhaps some of them are, but obviously all of them are not. 
And these things have been cited consistently, and I mean consistently, from 3,500 years ago until the present time. And uh, that's that's what this book is about. I wanted to be as comprehensive about this as possible. But that's that's what got me started. When I read this back in 93, I guess it was, I didn't know what to do with the information. I discussed it with my friends. I didn't publicize anything about it. Never wrote about UFOs. But I collected a lot of information. So the information that's in, in the book, and there's a lot there, uh, I began collecting really in 1993 secretly. Yeah, more or less secretly. And I decided, well, maybe someday I'll write about it. But I was very hesitant, as I say, because of my lack of any ufology background. But what cha- the other thing that changed me, to answer your question, why I wrote this book, was because of the U.S. government. Until 2017, just two years ago, the U.S. government regarded all sightings and experiences of this kind as total nonsense. People associated with it were crazy and had no value whatsoever. But in 2017, that was the way it was. That was the U.S. government's position throughout the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. But in 2017, they changed. And in 2017, the U.S. Navy admitted that their pilots had engaged UFOs over uh, Southern California and the waters off of Southern California that the U.S. Navy flotilla there had been buzzed by these objects for days and uh, the, the gun cameras were released to the public. The U.S. Navy came out and said, yes, this actually happened. The pilots were allowed to say what happened. Then it came out that the U.S. government, which had denied consistently for decades that they had no interest in UFOs, it was all a bunch of hogwash, the U.S. The US government admitted that they had spent $22 million just investigating UFOs. If they didn't believe in UFOs, if that was a lot of hogwash, they certainly wouldn't have spent this huge amount of money. Of course, that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's a lot more than that. But they admitted to that. And since that, since 2017... There has been a progression of disclosure that has come out. It didn't just stop with uh, the U.S. Navy's admission and the U.S. government's admission of the $22 million expenditure. There have been others. We can discuss those, perhaps. And I figured, well, if the government is now admitting to talk about it, then here it goes. I might as well put it together. And... uh, so those two things, finding the Thule papyrus in the Cairo Museum itself, and then uh, the U.S. government saying that, well, it's real after all. And uh, that's when I decided to do it. I have a feeling this interview will turn into a UFO classic very soon because what you're saying is resonating so much with me. Because I started doing this in 2008, and I'll explain later. Your story of Milton Torres, that's what gave birth to this radio program. But in 2017 is exactly when I started telling people, folks, focus on TV, on the TV right now. No longer are you seeing serious researchers going to serious programs to discuss this topic. Before, they would play the X-Files music. They would joke. They would just change the editorial of the story. Now, it's been taken seriously. I would be talking seriously about this topic for, for decades. But now... When the government finally came out, the population is finally listening, but in a serious way. So you obviously noticed this. Well, I think it was pretty obvious. 
and the newspapers. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.